Dear church, we specifically look at the seven letters that was written to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And if you were here in week one, you would know that the book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John. The Apostle John had this vision of the glorified Christ. That's why the book's name is Revelation. He had a revelation, not just of Jesus, but the glorified Jesus. And then from this revelation, from this vision, Jesus commands him, commands John to write down everything that he sees and hears to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And through the last couple of weeks, we've looked at every specific letter to these churches. And by studying these letters to those specific churches, we want to discover what is Jesus saying to his church today? What he said to them so many years ago, how applicable is it still to us as a church today? And today we're specifically going to look at the the church in Sardis. Now from the onset, I want to say, when, um, when I refer to this church, I might say the Sardians. Not the Sardines, Sardians, okay. And if you have your Bible with you, I would love us to read about this church in Sardis in Revelation 3. Revelation 3, verse 1. Now, before we do this, there's a couple of things that I want to share about Sardis, the city of Sardis, that is important for us to keep in mind when we read this letter to this church. The first thing about this city, Sardis, it used to be a very prominent city. At one stage, this was one of the largest, most powerful, most influential cities in the ancient world. It was at one stage the capital of the Lydian uh, kingdom. But as time went by, they degenerated. They lost their power, they lost their influence, they lost their significance. And by the Roman era, when John wrote this letter, They were holding on to past success. They were great at one stage, not anymore. They lost their power, they lost their influence, and they lost their wealth. Their greatness was in the past. This was a city with past reputation that exceeded their present reality. They were great at one stage. The second thing we need to know about Sardis, Sardis was known for their pagan worship. The city embraced different pagan cults, and uh, pagan worship was fluent in the city. Um, Greek deities like um, Artemis, Demeter, and Sybil were frequently worshipped. In fact, there were temples and shrines erected for the pagan worship of these deities in, in Sardis. They were known for their worship of these Greek deities. But interesting, not only was it known for this worship of the Greek deities, to give you an idea of how prominent this was, if you know a little bit about the ancient world, 
in Ephesus, there was this massive temple uh, created for Diana or Artemis. And, and, and Sardis wanted to replicate that temple in their city. That's how important this pagan worship was for them. But what's really interesting, not only had they this pagan worshiping community or culture, they also had one of the largest Jewish communities, communities in the city. There was a large Jewish community in this pagan society. And what was really interesting, in some form or way, these Jews were able to get prime property in the city. They were able to acquire some of the best and most valued ground in the city. And on this ground or on this property, they built a massive synagogue. Give us an idea. The synagogue was so was roughly the size of a normal soccer or rugby field. So in this pagan city, you find this Jewish worship culture as well, and this massive Jewish synagogue. The last thing that I want to mention about Sardis before we jump into this letter, Sardis was considered to be a fortress, a fortress, a place of safety and a place that's easy to defend. Throughout its history, it was known as a military strategic city. It was difficult to conquer the city because of how it was situated, because of its location. The city was on, on top of a hill, and three of the areas, three of the four areas around the city were surrounded by steep cliffs. And it made it really difficult for any army that wanted to capture and conquer Sardis to, to really capture the city because they couldn't attack them from the cliffside. It was difficult to come to the city uh, on the cliffs. And there was this one narrow passageway up into Sardis. And all that the Sardis military had to do was to defend that one area of weakness. So they, was, they were known as a fortress, a place of safety, of military strength. And in this city that used to be prominent, that used to be powerful, that's got this pagan worship, this fortress of strength, there's a church. And Jesus is writing to this church. And that's what we're going to read, the letter to the church in Sardis. Before we do that, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you this morning that you are faithful and constant, loving, full of truth and grace. And Lord, as we look at your words to this church in Sardis, it's by faith that we believe that you can continue to speak to us as well. And Lord, we pray now that by your Spirit that you would come and um, reveal your truth to us. Lord, I pray that you would keep my words in line with your intended purpose and intended message. But more importantly, Lord, I pray that by your Spirit that you would make your word alive and active to each one of our hearts. May you speak to our minds. May you speak to our soul. And Lord, we declare and we acknowledge and we humble ourselves in front of your word, in front of your spirit. And may your perfect will be done in this moment. We pray this in your wonderful and powerful name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So let's read together Revelations 1, translation. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, 
These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now remember, if you were here in the first week, you would know that this letter was written out aloud in front of the church. But not just this letter, every letter to every church was read out. So the church in Sardis was sitting there, and they were listening to the first four churches, hearing what Jesus is saying to them. And now this is their turn, and this is what Jesus says. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Imagine hearing these words for the first time, waiting for Jesus to go, hey, you're doing great. And Jesus says, you're dead. I think he said it in a more loving way. But the truth is, you think you're alive. You have a reputation, but you're dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of the person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Tough read. Tough moment for the church in Sardis. Most of us know or have been taught how to give positive criticism, how to engage in a difficult conversation. The sandwich technique. You know this? Where you start off by saying something positive, something you appreciate. Something that the person is doing well, that's the outside of the sandwich. And then in between, you give that confrontation moment, the, the correction, the truth, the uh, criticism. And then you end it off again with the other part of the sandwich, the, the reward part or the positive reinformation or the, the um, this is what I do appreciate. And again, something positive, the truth sandwich. If you don't know this technique, you're welcome. <laughs> Please do go and try and use it. You're welcome to try it in your marriage. Those difficult moments. Just start with something positive. Sneak the truth in. And then again, something positive. And to all the other churches that Jesus is writing to, we see a similar pattern. Jesus starts off to the other churches, and he says something that they're doing great. He, co he commends them for something. He says, you've been faithful, you've persevered, you've, you've uh, fought against false prophets. He says something that they're doing good. Then Jesus rebukes them or corrects them, and then Jesus ends off with a promise again. In most of the letters, this is the pattern that you see. But not with the church in Sardis. Of all the churches, Jesus' rebuke to this church is the harshest. Jesus doesn't start off with something positive. Jesus doesn't commend this church 
for anything. Jesus has nothing good to reinforce to this church. I don't know about you, but the first time that I read this, I literally sat up straight in my chair. And I thought, God, may I not miss what you want to do in my life. May I not be deceived thinking, I've got it, but I'm missing you. There's not one good thing that Jesus can commend them for. Instead, Jesus starts with, I know you. There's no hiding away from this reality. The creator of heaven and earth goes, I know you, Vian. I created you. I know you, church. I know your deeds. Cannot hide it from me. That what is invisible to people is perfectly clear to God. Jesus says, I know you. I know your deeds. You are active. You are busy. You are doing a lot of things. And you look good from the outside. You have a good name and a good reputation amongst people. You are even liked by others. You think you're doing great. That you are alive. But you're dead. I see what no one else sees. I see what's in your heart, what's in your soul. And it is dead. It's important that we hear this. Jesus is not saying it's ill. Jesus is not saying there's trouble. Jesus is saying it's dead. And this is not the dead that we so often use after a, a hard exercise. Oh, I was dead. Or maybe going to the gym for the first time in six months. It doesn't even have to be hard. It's just you're dead. I'm dead. That's not what Jesus said. There's something in your soul. It's dead. See, you think you're alive. But in my eyes, you're dead. See, remember, this was not unbelievers that Jesus was talking to. He's not talking about they, they are dead, they're spiritually dead, they haven't been rejuvenated by the Spirit of God. This is the church that Jesus is speaking to. This is a church that somewhere there was life in this church. Somewhere they responded to Jesus. Somewhere they experienced new spiritual life. But something happened. Caused this church to die. And this brings us with the, big, with the big question. We need to answer, why was this church dead? Because if we can see why this church was dead, why Jesus was so, uh, not angry, but frustrated with this church, then we can see if those things are part of our lives. So why was this church dead? From the sticks, I want to suggest four reasons why the church and Sardis was facing spiritual death. The first one, they moved away from the gospel. I find it so interesting that here's a church 
in the middle of a city that is known for pagan worship, has got this massive Jewish community, and yet this church faces no persecution. If you read to all the other churches, there's a form of persecution, there's a form of oppression or opposition, but this church is not facing any persecution. Throughout the New Testament and early church history, we see how the church was persecuted or opposed because of the message of the church. The message was offensive. What the church did was offensive, and they faced opposition. And this opposition, this persecution, usually was done by pagan authorities or communities. And if it wasn't the pagan authorities and communities that was persecuting the Christians, it was the unbelieving Jews. If you read through the book of Acts, it was usually the unbelieving Jews who started the persecution against the Christians. Here you sit with both communities, the pagan community and the unbelieving Jews, and yet none of them are offended by the message of the church. In Sardis, it looks as if these pagan worship community and unbelieving Jews have embraced the church. And this could only have been possible if the church moved away from the message of the gospel. Because the gospel is divisive. In 1 Peter 2, we read uh, this idea about the gospel, about Jesus See, I lay a stone in Zion. This is a prophetic declaration. I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame, referring to Jesus as this cornerstone. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. The gospel is a stumbling rock. The gospel is not offensive, but it is divisive. Because the gospel says, the message of the gospel says, you're not okay. The message of the gospel is, you're not okay. You're a sinner, and you need you. You need a savior. There's a change that needs to take place in your life. And nothing that you can do can bring forth that change. That's the message of the gospel. There's something wrong with you. Something needs to change. And there's nothing that you can do about it. But there's one God. Not many gods. Not many pagan deities. The message of the gospel says there's one God. And there's one way to this God. Not different ways, not good behavior, not choose whatever road you think will lead to God. There's one way, and this way is faith and hope and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who became man and died for your sin. There's one way, and he was raised from the dead. And if you put your faith and hope in him, you will be saved. One message, one God, one way. Nothing you can do can change it. That's the gospel in its simplest 
form. Gospel is divisive. Even today, if you were to say what I said now, some people will be offended. Some people find it difficult to hear there's one way to God. Some people like the idea of being able to choose whatever God they want to serve and ultimately will end up at the same eternal destiny. But the message of the gospel says there's one God, one way, and you need a Savior. See, if this was the message of the church in Sardis, if they were actively proclaiming the gospel in the city, if they were going out evangelizing and trying to reach the people that are lost, that will internally be condemned, if they really were living the gospel and proclaiming the gospel, they would have faced some form of opposition. For some of us that's sitting here this morning, just hearing that gospel presentation is difficult. There's opposition in your heart. See, if the church lived the gospel, if they proclaimed the gospel, they would have faced opposition. Instead, it looks as if they moved away from the message of the gospel. It looks as if they embraced a love wins theology where everyone is accepted and embraced just as you are. In love, you have your truth and I have my truth and we honor each other for that. An extremely dangerous theology in modern society. Love does not win. It's unloving, not telling people there's one way to God. Jesus was the ultimate demonstration of love. If there's a love theology, it was that God was willing to give everything in order to create one way for you to experience Him. But it looks as if this church had a different approach. They moved away from the gospel. Second thing that I believe happened in this church that made them die spiritually. They lived nominal lives. I'm going to explain this. When Jesus speaks about the few in Sardis, there was a few in this church that stayed faithful. He said the following words, they have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white. Now what's important here, as I already mentioned, Sardis was known for his worship of pagan deities. And one of the cultural things that had to happen for you to enter into one of these deity temples, into this worship arenas, if you will, you had to wear clean white linen to enter these temples. So the worship of these deities required clean white linen. And Jesus, when referring to those who stayed faithful, said, they did not soil their linen of worship. By implication, the church contaminated their worship. 
the church soiled their garments. The, sh- the church became dirty, impure in their worship unto God. See, the church became so immersed in the pagan culture that they started to do and act according to the standards of the community. And they soiled their garments. They soiled their worship. They lived impure lives that did not honor God. Their lifestyle was not different anymore. They looked like the community. Their lifestyle was not a a witness to God anymore. If you were to put them and and a pagan worshiper next to each other, you wouldn't see a massive difference. They became a nominal church. They swelled their worship. Myself and Yaku were speaking about this idea before church. It's, it's, it's like coming to church on Sunday, singing the songs we sing, putting our Bible verses up against the fridge, and then whenever we need Jesus, we quickly turn to those verses, and whenever we're done, we continue with life as if we want to. Our life looked the same as anyone else's life. Their worship was soiled, was contaminated. See, the Christian lifestyle should look radically different to the standards of this world. The kingdom of God, the culture of the kingdom of God is counterculture to the world. See, if the world says, it's all about you, the kingdom of God says, it's not about you. It's about one greater than you. Where the world says, Just be you. Just do you. The Bible, the kingdom of God says, don't be you. There's something inside of you that needs to change. You need to become who God created you to be, the image of God. You need to be transformed in the image of Christ. Don't do you. Do Jesus. Where the the world says, make a name for yourself, the kingdom of God says, you are defined by the RS authority and the name that he gives you. It's not what you do, it's about who speaks over your life. That gives you significance. Where the world says everything is permissible and do it and enjoy life, you only live once. The kingdom of God says there's certain things in this world that you need to flee from. Rid your life of those things. Where the world says eye for eye, the kingdom of God says turn the other cheek and choose to forgive. Where the world says you are entitled to certain things, The kingdom of God says, lay down your rights and serve this world. The kingdom of God is countercultural. It says, if you want to become great, you need to become the least. It says, it's better to give than to receive. When Jesus gave his life, it was the highest price that God could pay. And he didn't pay that price so that our lives can look the same as the world. He brought the kingdom of God into this world. And it's counterculture. The church in Sardis lost their witness. Their lifestyle did not testify that there's a God that deserves so much more. They were a nominal church 
whose worship became irrelevant. See, this church were more concerned with their outward appearance and their acceptance in a pagan society than with the condition of the soul, with the inward purity of their devotion towards Jesus. It was more important about what the people were saying about them than about the purity and the holiness by which they were living. The third reason why I believe this church died, they neglected their devotion to Jesus, their personal devotion. Jesus says to the church, you're doing a lot of things, but you are dead, and it's dead works. Now, they've been cut off from the source of their spiritual life, and and reading these words of Jesus, I'm reminded of his teaching towards his disciples that we read about in John 15. John 15 Jesus says to his disciples, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. You're dead. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. From the evidence in this text, it's fair to conclude that they neglected their personal devotion towards Jesus. They became self-reliant. They started following um, their own will, living from their own strength, doing what they desire, doing what they think is, is right and what's needed trusting their past experience, trusting their own wisdom, their own understanding. They stopped living from the source of spiritual life. They ceased to remain in Jesus. And they were cut off. If you neglect your personal devotion to Jesus, no matter how many times you come to church, somewhere, something inside of you slowly but surely start to die. Because Jesus didn't die to bring you just into a spiritual community. He died so that you experience spiritual family and also personal relationship. They ultimately failed to remain in Jesus. And the fourth thing, their pride and self-righteousness blinded them. See, Jesus warns this church Not after he said, you must wake up. And he says, if they don't listen to his warning and change their ways, he says the following words, I will come like a thief and you will not know what time I will come to you. Now, this is more than a warning. This is a little bit of interesting history about the the city of Sardis that this church would have known. This church would have known their own history. And when these words were read, they would have struck a nerve. Throughout the history of the city of Sardis, there was this military fortress that never, regardless of how many battles they went through, they always were safe and, and protected, apart from two occasions. 400, the 4th and the 6th, Century before Christ, there were two occasions, 200 years apart, 
where they were conquered by an invading army. Every other battle, every onslaught on the city, they survived apart from these two occasions. And both these occasions happened in a similar fashion. And both, both these occasions happened because of their arrogance and their lack of watchfulness. They believed they were unconquerable, so they stopped guarding the cliff areas. And one army, one soldier, saw a way up the cliffs. And at night, like a thief in the night, he climbed up with a group of troops onto these cliffs, snuck into the city, and the city was overrun and conquered like a thief in the night. Because they were arrogant and self-reliant, and they thought this would never happen to us. 200 years later, exactly the same thing. Another invading army up the cliffs, sneaking into the city at night, conquering the city of Sardis. See, arrogance and pride can keep us from experiencing God's, um, God's grace. And Jesus warns them. You need to hear me, church. This is what Jesus is saying to you. Don't be like your history. Don't think you're okay. Don't be too prideful to submit and repent. Don't be so self-righteous that you miss what I'm going to do in you. Your life can be conquered by evil. You need to be watchful. You need to humble yourself. See, their pride and their righteousness blinded them to their own sin. It deceived them in thinking they're okay. And it made them complacent in their daily walk with God. This church was an example of what the Apostle Paul described. In 2 Timothy 3, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. They looked great, but they were dead. Sardis was the dead church walking. As of the city, this church held on to past experience, and its greatness was in the past. But even in this dire state, even in the spiritual death, there is grace. And Jesus says, wake up. I read these words and I think of, of movie scenes. Have you seen a, a movie scene where, where someone dies and somebody close to them that loves them is, is at this corpse and, and they would pound on the chest of that person. They would, they would not go, wake up, wake up. Are you there? Out of love, they would pound that person. Wake up! Wake up! And that's what Jesus is doing to this church. He's not rebuking them. He's calling them. He's saying, guys, you are missing it. And I cannot let you continue like this. Wake up! Strengthen what is nearly lost. Go back to the little truth that is still left in this community. Go back to the little faith that you have. Hold fast to my word. Repent. Repent of your hypocrisy. Turn back to me. Repent of your desire to look good in front of people. Come back to me and say, 
It's only you. Wake up. I'm not angry. I'm not mad at you. I'm appealing. Wake up. I love you. I don't want you to see. I don't want to see you lost. Wake up. And then Jesus gives this promise. To those who is victorious will be dressed in white. I will never blot out your name of the person from the book of life. But I will acknowledge that name before my Father and His angels. What Jesus is saying to them. Forget about your reputation with people. If you were to repent and hold fast, I will make you righteous. I will give you white robes. I will purify you. And you will have good reputation with me. I will acknowledge your name in front of the Father. That's what Jesus is saying to this church. Forget about what people are thinking about you. If you were to repent and come back to me, I will purify you. And you will have good reputation with me. And I will acknowledge your name in front of the Father and the angels. Can you imagine that moment in eternity? Where we stand in front of Jesus and Jesus turns to the Father and he says, My Father, this is Warren. This is the life he lived. He was a faithful servant and he honored you above everything else. He put his faith and trust in me. I honor his name in front of you. This is Michelle. She has good reputation in the courts of heaven. See, how do you revive what is dead? I thought about this uh, earlier this year. My car broke down um, because of a battery. Don't know if this happened to you. Recently happened to you. The absolute frustration of knowing there's nothing wrong with this vehicle apart from the source of energy. And I was standing at a shopping center, and I was trying to get people to help me because I, uh, I, need, I had jumper cables, but I needed someone else to obviously be connected to a source. So eventually we got someone to help me. I put on the jumper cables, tried to restart the car. didn't happen. Then we started to push start the car. It just didn't happen. The battery was just beyond the point of saving. It was dead. A dead battery makes a dead car. How do you revive what is dead? It's impossible for us. There's something new that needs to happen. And I believe we find the answer. How do you revive what is spiritually dead? The answer is found in Jesus and the way that he introduces himself to this church. If you go back to the very first verse, this is what Jesus says to the church, to the angel of the church in Sardis, right? These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God. Jesus says, I am the one. The seven spirits is a reference to the completeness of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, I am the one that holds the Holy Spirit in my hand. And I believe Jesus is saying to this church in Sardis, if you were to repent and turn back to me, I would release the spirit on your church and the spirit of God will bring new life to you 
I believe that is what God is saying to every person that feels spiritually dead in their heart. If you were to repent and turn back, I will release my spirit and my spirit will bring new life to your soul. That what seems impossible to man, that what you cannot do from yourself, I will do by my spirit in response to you waking up, repenting. Maybe you're sitting here today and you realize there's something dead inside of you. Something in your soul that has died. Maybe like the church in Sardis, you have moved away from the gospel. You forgot the gospel. Jesus says, remember where you started. Remember the message. Maybe like this church, you live a nominal life. Life that's not a witness for God. You've just been entangled in the culture of this world. Maybe because of many good reasons, you've neglected your personal devotion to God. Slowly but surely, something has died inside of you. Or maybe you're more concerned about what people say and where you accept it than what God thinks about you. May pride and self-righteousness not keep us from experiencing God's grace. And this morning is a moment for us as church. Jesus ends this letter and says, whoever has ears should listen to what the Spirit is saying.